0: Hey guys, and welcome back to the podcast, Black Kings Read. I want to thank everyone who has supported the podcast thus far, and those who are new to the podcast, welcome. All the information for the podcast is in our show notes, so don't forget to like our Facebook page, follow us on Instagram, and also on Twitter, and you can also contact me directly at blackkingsread at gmail.com. Just so you know, for this podcast, I did say that um, we were actually going to break this up into three different parts this will actually be broken up into two parts. So me and Amir discussed The Crisis of the Negro Intellect by Harold Cruz. I did not get a chance to edit this podcast out fully. I did a quick edit. So if there are some hiccups, I do apologize about that. The volume quality is not that great. I realized I didn't check my sound before I began the podcast. So hopefully It won't be too much of a problem. So I do, once again, apologize for that. I am learning as I'm growing to podcasting. You know, in the beginning, when I started this, I said, okay, you know, just go ahead, create the podcast, upload the episode, you'll be good to go. And now I'm learning that there's a whole uh, backstory to doing podcasting, not only just editing, but also um promoting my podcast, and just trying to get the word out there because I really want this podcast to grow. Also, I'm looking for other Black Kings who like to read. So if you're a Black male and you like to read um, specifically nonfiction books, then I would definitely recommend that you contact me once again at blackkingsread at gmail.com. Also, if you have any type of feedback, once again, email me. The email again is blackkingsread at gmail.com. And if you are driving and you forget, the information is in the show notes. In addition to that, um, we are also, also, now I remember what it was, um, wherever you're listening to this platform, specifically if you're listening on Apple, please give us a five-star rating. I haven't done that in the beginning because I was just trying to get my feet wet. But I think that now, with already having six episodes out, I would like to have some sort of metric that I can use so I can improve on this podcast. And also, once again, follow us on like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter and Instagram. And we will definitely be contacting you if you get in contact with us as far as the feedback and if you're interested in joining the podcast. Next season, I do want to have a book discussion with more than just one person. So I'm looking to expand that as well. So once again, there are more things into the works that I look forward to. But in the meantime, enjoy the podcast. And you will definitely hear back from me. Hey, guys, and welcome back to another episode of John's Bookshelf Presents Black King's Read. I'm here back with Amir to discuss The Crisis of the Negro Intellectual by Harold Cruz. Hey, Amir. Hey. Hey. Um, And also... We are going to get into a little bit about what happened over last week as far as the midterms as well. I know some of you are probably waiting for that, so let's get right into it. Amir, what fascinated you about this book? Because this originally wasn't a book that I would have selected, but it, it is very um, detailed. So go ahead.
1: Yeah, so um, in graduate school, uh, my favorite professor uh it's, it's a brother from New York, actually. And he moved out to California and uh, to do his PhD at USC. And uh, while he was there, he really got heavy into Harold Cruz's work. And all throughout grad school, and it's funny. So I I heard about this book through Twitter. There's a there's a follower on Twitter, and he was uh, tweeting excerpts from the book. And I'm like, man, this, this sounds great. So I picked up the book. And then at the same time, ironically my teacher in grad school kept talking about Cruz's work. So, you know, it, it led me to actually really dive into all of his books. And, you know, the crisis of the Negro intellectual was his first book. And there's a debate between, between, uh, Cruz scholars between which is the better book between the crisis of the Negro intellectual and plural, but equal. Um, I don't want to get my thoughts on that. I, I love them both equally and, After reading through Cruz, Cruz has become probably my favorite author.
0: One thing about this reading Cruz, he definitely deals with the problems that are going on in the society at this time. Crisis of the Negro Intellectuals, written in 1967. But Mm -hmm. this book, in the book, he talks a lot about what happened during the 1920s and the 1960s. Mm -hmm. Um, One thing, starting with the the first chapter... Is that he talks about Harlem, and the first thing mm-hmm. that he says is, "When you see, when you see Black America, you see Harlem." So there goes when there goes Harlem, there goes Black America, and mm-hmm. I never looked at Harlem like that before because Harlem, you know, people talk about the Harlem Renaissance as it's um, just a, a notch in history. It was very pivotal for the Black. Arts, the Black politics, Black liberation, and I—I I just never reading this book. I never looked at Harlem like that until now. Even Du Bois, um, he even talks a lot here about Harlem, the issue of social integration. And on page mm-hmm. nine, he says this: Although the three main power groups power, power, although the three main power groups—Protestants, Catholics, and Jews. Neither want nor need to become integrated with each other. The existence of the great body of homogenized, inter-assimilated white Americans is the premise for social integration. Thus, the Negro integrist runs afoul of the reality in the pursuit of an illusion, the open society... A false front that hides several doors to several different worlds of the hyphened Americans. What group or subgroup leaves this door wide open for the outsider? None really. Uh So how would that play into today? It's almost like we didn't learn our lesson because we often have an open door saying that, hey, if you're part of us, then you're one of us. Right.
1: So that's one of the things that that I see that's still going on today. And... I got I got kind of in trouble for it, I would say, when I posed this question on Facebook a few months ago about the POC label. So Cruz pointed out back then it was like, Okay, you got you know the Protestants, the Catholics, the Jews, this, that and the third, but they all understand their place within within society. Whereas though black folks at this time, especially in Harlem, you know, they wanted to lump their their issues in with each other, but their issues are totally different. So he was basically saying that each ethnic group and each person, yeah, they all interact with each other. But at the same point, they recognize who they are within the society.
0: And for those that don't know, POC stands for people of color. I don't like that term either. I realize that not everyone that is a quote unquote person of color, when they say person of color, they mean uh, Native Americans, Asians, East a- Uh, southern asians and also latino latino ex hispanic excuse me non-white hispanic and our fights are all different and we have to understand that we work together when we work with our own struggles but when we work on our own struggles then we are able to come up together but the problem with the negroes they think that if we allow people to work within our struggle then we will all rise up together But that's not how it works. Actually, later on in the book, he talks about the difference between Jews and blacks. And we'll get later into that as, as well. Another thing that he one thing that I was able to grasp from this specifically in this chapter was the parallels between what happened in the 1920s and. What's going on today? And there were three things that stood out to me. The rise of the several, uh, the rise of several leftist political, mm. the Gilded mm-hmm. Age, and the rise of the Klan. And let me break that down for you. So in the 1920s, you had the the communists, you had the mm-hmm. radical left, as well as the nationalists. And even today, now we have a surge in rise in leftist groups. Not necessarily the communists, but we do have um, social social democrats. We also have a few. Nat- we also have some nationalists, as far as black like nationalists. The Gilded Age. We even see this now with the massive wealth inequality. The rich are getting richer. The poor are getting poorer, and also the rise of the Klan. Well, not necessarily today, but the Klan. Historical data proves that the biggest, the largest number of enrollment of clan members was during the nineteen twenties. And that's mm-hmm. tied to economics a little bit as well. And and we also have well let me say it like this. The clan is more professional. They changed their hoods for robes. So now right. they're judges, they are police officers. The people who are now the the people who are the clan are now the white nationalists that we see, like the Richard Spencer's, the Proud Boys, things of that sort. But let me read to you on page forty two. All right. And this is in the so this is the last sentence, and this is this, this is the boy's talking, and he's talking about democratic socialism or mm-hmm. socialism as a whole. It had adapted the older European version of socialism programming, wherein economics and politics took over pres- took precedent over culture and art. As pioneering Negro socialists, the messenger intellectuals were just as unoriginal as the Negro communists were to mm-hmm. become during the nineteen twenties. They took they took their political schemes from the whites and thus did not grasp the fact that Native American Negro point of view, neither politics, economics, nor culture took precedence over each other, but were inseparable and had to function together. What's your thoughts on that?
1: I think it's absolutely right. Whereas, um, and I think this is the problem where black folks are in the trouble right now is that, you know, and it's funny because the, cri- the, the title of the book is The Crisis of Negro Intellectual." And I feel as though the people from the intellectual community have this crisis right now. Shameless plug is that I did write uh, an article t- titled The Crisis of the Modern Negro Intellectual based on the premise of this book and some parts of plural equal. But now that there's no clear cut pathway towards uh, identity that black folks in America are going to. It's, it's just all work, just like, well, we believe in this, well, we believe in that, what we believe in this. And it's so divided that no one is coming together on any issue and just hammering down on how to fix a, a problem and coming towards a solution.
0: And with the parallels of going into the 1920s that we see today, we're definitely seeing this breakdown with the African-American community where everyone's so divided, like you said, that we don't even, we don't even get on one accord. And mind you, this is after having a... Black president in the White House, right? And that's not—that's the only difference between then and now. And of course, not to take away, also having technology, having resources, having accessibility to each other, we're still found in this same reciprocal cycle of, well, let's just work hand in hand with other people that are not that are not like us. Well, in the later, but we're going to talk about. The difference between the <laughs> black middle class and the black bourgeoisie and the black class, and how class also plays into that as well. Uh, for Harlem, it's just one thing that I like about this book is that it gives a really detailed background of what was going on in the 1920s and the 1960s. It's more this to me reads more like a history book than a a book that's making political points or trying to make a political argument, does that sound about fair?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think, and, and this is part of Cruz's, uh, in his second book, he does this too. So I feel like the crisis of the Negro intellectual, he more so criticizes the, uh, the intellectuals during the 1920s, throughout the 60s, and the people that became famous. Whereas though, in his second book, Plural but Equal, he talks about civil rights movement and about civil rights actors and why they felt you know, pushing civil rights and, you know, why Black America was eventually fractured off and made substantial gains. So here is just more so of, you know, the people that became famous as far as the arts goes, instead of, you know, more so the political side.
0: And for those who haven't read the book as of yet, the people that he's talking about, the Negro intellectuals, he is referring to because I was like, why is he referring to the same people over and over again? He's referring to Ozzie Davis, Lorraine Hasbury, Paul Roberson, Richard Wright, and I'm forgetting Richard Wright, and I'm forgetting one more. And it just
1: can't he kind of threw jabs at a uh, um Mary Baraka, So
0: that's Jones his, his name. Okay, for those who don't, for those who have not read the book yet, in the in the book, his name is Leroy Jones. So if you see Leroy Jones, Leroy Jones, that's a Baraka. That's what I'm. That's what I was thinking about. That's, mm-hmm. yeah, I was like, Leroy Jones, Leroy Jones. That's Amir Baraka, whose yeah. son is now the mayor of Newark, New Jersey. Newark. Yep. Yeah. So he did do that several times. And I was like, why does he keep on referring to people in the arts, such as the theater arts, the the mm-hmm. um, literature arts, and not, the te- and not in television? And I'm like, okay, this book was written in 1967. Right. The TV wasn't right. big back then. So the thing was, the theater arts. So if you're reading this book, you get confused. Why does he ever talk about TV? Keep in mind, once again, it was written in 1967. So television. In fact, I was just thinking, have you ever been to the African American museum in DC, the new one? No, I
1: haven't been to the new one, but I'm, I'm skeptical about it. Okay.
0: I have. I've only, well, (laughs) for those who haven't been there, one thing, I don't know if I said this before on the podcast, but do not go in the afternoon. Don't go in the afternoon. Always Mm. go in the morning. When it opens up. Go at eight o'clock, do not go at twelve o'clock. The reason why is because the that museum is made up of several different parts. The main part you go is at the is in the basement, it's four levels down. That's where our history is told. Then there's four levels up where they have the contemporary stuff and where you can see other things. But when you go when you go down to the basement, if you go down there, it takes you basically half of the day to get through everything. And when you go down, what they do is they put you on the elevator. You go all the way down to the fourth level, lower level. And then when you're going up, you're going through an African-American history. So at the bottom, you start before slavery. Um, they talk about Queen Nzinga. And then when you're going through, it goes to slavery, then um, Reconstruction, Now, the reason why I'm bringing this up is because when you're going up further, it's it starts with before slavery and it ends with Obama, as our history always got. Yeah, that's where it ends at at Obama. But when you get to the (laughs) arts, when you get to the arts, specifically the theater arts, even in this book, you see that black people are using the arts to tell their story, to speak up. And but when you get to the arts and television, it's more like celebration. So it's more like it's like you go from struggle to celebration. So you see, you know, they talk about, just like they talk about Raising the sun, and, you know, the the story with the Raising the sun. you see Richard Wright, you see all these things that African-Americans were using the arts to tell their story, but then when it came to television, it was like, okay, let's celebrate, we have made it, let's, you know, you see Good Times and um, Jackson 5, things of that sort that basically just takes away from our struggle, like we have arrived. Mm. So that's why I bring up the African-American Museum. And it never crossed my mind until I read this book, like, oh, this is why they're using the arts. Now, of course, he talks about Amos and Andy. He talks about the Chitlin circuit, the shucking and jiving. And he talks about, oh, I wonder if this is in my notes. Yes, it's actually coming up. He talks about Porgy and Best And I never liked Porgy and Bess. I didn't know why. But after reading this book, I see... I didn't, but going on to the next chapter, Media and the Cultural Democracy. I'm going to read, uh, I have to read this sentence. This sentence really got to me. It's actually on page 65, for those who have the hardback. It says this, and on the bottom where is, where this mass society emerges, stands, this standard Negro, uh-huh. not quite pos- passive as of now, but still subject to manipulation and still Political, fragmented, if not more so than ever. The Negro is today the victim of the incompetence of radical social theory and the thirty, uh, sorry, and the forty-year default of the Negro intelligentsia. The crisis in black and white is also a is also a crisis in social theory. Therein, American capitalism. The racial exploiter has, by its own inner dynamics, swept through before it by its power and rapid development and ability to recover, adjust, and absorb institutionalized even anti-capitalistic features. But if American capitalists within its America, sorry, within its mass media, continues to propagate the myth of the great American dream, its political has not, its politics has not solved poverty, war corruption, waste, or the racial question. The issues of the 1920s quantitatively enlarge and are still here. Mm-hmm. That part really got to me, especially when he said the crisis in black and white is also a crisis in social theory when they're, excuse me, they're in American capitalism, the racial exploiter. It mm-hmm. amazes me that... I would remember we were just talking about this not too long ago, that people, especially in the mass media, they use racist, racism as a way to capitalism. There's this, uh-huh. There is this media company, I'm not going to say their name, that whenever something happens with Black people, they have no problem uploading a video. They get 1,000 views, over 100,000 views, and they make money for them. And they just did this recently with something that happened here in Illinois to the young Black uh, security guard that got shot. Sure enough, uh-huh. when he got shot, they made several videos, probably making a few thousand dollars off of it, but yet they don't have any black journalists. They only have uh-huh. like a black producer. They talk about race, but don't necessarily solve the issue with racism. And this happened in the 1920s. Uh-huh. And now we're almost in 2020. A hundred years later, and we're still doing the same thing. Absolutely.
1: That's funny that you, you brought that section up because. I started working on it over the summertime, but I didn't finish it. I was working on this piece called Black Pain is Profit. So I saw what was going on with the Black Lives Matter movement and how the media started carrying these events. And I started seeing that, wait a second, a lot of these events that's going on with Black suffering is just to make profit off of it. And the only people that's profiting off of it is the white media. The the people that's in control of the media are not black folks, even those who publish these articles who talk about social stuff. So like what Cruz is saying, uh, what page was that on again?
0: Sixty five.
1: Sixty five. Right. Where he says uh, the crisis in black and white is also the crisis in social theory, wherein American capitalism, the racial exploiter, has its own inner dynamics about everything before it by power rapid development abilities He'd recover adjust absorbs and institutionalize even anti-capitalistic features so what he's saying by this is that yes we'll push this anti-capitalism stuff on black people but we'll be the ones that's actually making money off of it so what we tell you you know this this is not a good thing for you Oh, black folk! The white man is after you. Just saying, that they're they're producing all those videos and and making the money from the views. Mm-hmm. So that's what's been going on out here. And and Cruz was saying it, you know, back in nineteen sixty-seven.
0: And we still haven't learned. We still don't even control our media. And I know that there was a time when uh, when and he talks about this when there was a lot of black media. You had black newspapers, and back in the nineteen from the nineteen sixty to the nineteen 90s you have black independent radio stations now that all changed under the um, communications act in the Mm -hmm. 19 i think it's 1992 with bill clinton Mm -hmm. the quote-unquote first black president for those who get all sensitive and get Mm -hmm. all nostalgic about oh he's the first black president because of his actions a lot of the independent black communications media streams as far as the radio and the television was broken up because of him and it allowed for the conglomerates of media to come together and buy out the in, these independent black stations. I live here in Chicago, and people don't know this, but WVON, what used to be called the Voice of the Negro, which is now called the Voice of the Negro, is not independently owned. It's actually owned by Clear Channel and has been for quite a while now. And when you have that, you necessarily don't have um, your own voice. You have no way of communicating with your people. So media really does matter when it comes, especially the black people. I remember when, not so long ago, when, what's his name? um, Roland Martin, his show got canceled. That was a big, devastating blow. Now, he's nobody's progressive. You know, every time I think about Roland Martin, I think about when he... Shucking and jiving for Hillary Clinton was, was, mm-hmm. ugh, was disgusting, but that was the only way for Black people to get our issues across on morning news. He covered the things that were that wasn't covered by the CNN or MSNBC, and definitely not Fox News. So when we lost that, we had no way of having morning news. And now most of the news that we have to get is online visa via by YouTube even if, and now YouTube is being taken over by the multi-million dollar media conglomerates of today and that's really uh-huh. putting a strain on how we communicate with with each other and Harlem in itself had a very deep history in politics and also one thing and he does talk about it one time but people forget that Harlem is where we got Adam Clayton Powell Jr. Well. Mm-hmm. So when you think about all the things that comes with the arts, politics, this all most of it stems out of out of Harlem, mm-hmm. and also back to the Black bourgeoisie. Uh, the Black bourgeoisie was very it was very special in this book. They were people who who did not well in this book he he pushes the Af- he pushes the Negro to support the arts and support the arts and the arts actually are supported by the black bourgeoisie. It's funny, actually reading this book, the first thing that hit my mind was, this is where, and I could be wrong, is this where Du Bois theorized his, um, or excuse me, not necessarily theorized, theorized but experimented with his talented 10th position? Because you see a lot of what he believes to be the talented 10th here in Harlem. Yeah, to an
1: extent, his... his... I think one of his main uh, critical points of Du Bois, so he compared to him and Garvey uh, a lot throughout the first half of the book, right? Mm-hmm. Where, Whereas though he actually criticized both of them. He, he said they were both wrong. But for Du Bois, his critique of Du Bois was the fact that Du Bois didn't know too much about the Black underclass because he was never really a Black underclass member himself. So when he talked about the talents Sims, he was just talking about the people that he knew of. So he didn't believe in the, over, the overacting, the fact that most of Black America could rise up because he only been around educated Black folks his entire life. Even when he did his studies with the the uh, what was the name of the book? The Philadelphia studies. Negro. Yeah, Philadelphia Negro. Whereas uh, that was his first interaction with Lower income black people, so for the so his critique on the boys was, Yeah, you talk about a talented tip, but that's because you're stuck in these places where the most intellectual black folks at. And then, if you do step back and you go into like the south or something, or these lower income communities, and then you have a different view on what black people are. So, you just give up and say, Well, we got this talented tip, and that's it.
0: One thing that I'm starting to realize now is that he was trying to explain to black America, to the Negro, how they really don't have a position in the capitalism capitalism system. And I get from this off of page 94. Sorry, it's at the very last paragraph. It says this, history has placed Negro leadership in the favorable position of not having to beg the question of free enterprise. For it is free enterprise that must prove itself American capitalism must prove that political democracy, economic democracy, and cultural democracy are possible under free enterprise. It means that free enterprise must lay the economic base for all three objectives by direct financing of the new parallel institutions within the ghetto of an economic, culture, and class ownership nature. If traditional morality of free enterprise, private property considerations, objects to the democratization of economic relations between the white power and the black ghettos, then the rights of property must yield to other forms of economic organization or practice by legal coercion. So for this, he's explaining to black people that if you want to have free enterprise, you have to touch on these three things. And one thing that black people do, and he talks about the group economics earlier, it's almost like black people, we have no problem addressing the economic democracy and the cultural democracy, because we're all about the culture, whatever that means. But when it comes to politics, that's where we miss out the most.
1: Right. But 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 I would say, um, I, I think his one of his biggest critiques about that was that fact that, He was a big critique of, like, socialism. And if you read Between the Lines on this, he he is supporting black capitalism. So um, the, the next paragraph after that, he says, the present leadership of Negro movements of whatever faction is unable to fashion suitable programs for the ghettos of the United States because they failed to grasp the key nature of Harlem ghetto and also because they inherited the leadership failures of the black bourgeoisie of previous generations the new generation leadership must condemn the incompetence of their fathers but they find it extremely difficult to shake off their legacy movements Mm. rise and fall organizations efforts collapse for lack of proper orientation and negro life economics politics and culture are the inseparable elements of social change. What he's saying is that, yeah, the, the, the communities also fell because each each different category are all online. You can't be a socialist and then talk about you hate, you know, the media and the media is working against you. You can't be a capitalist and say, well, we don't need to own the media groups or we don't need to own uh, politicians or whatever. East each category is a chain and a fence. So if one doesn't align with the rest of the, the fence, then you don't have a fence. It's like mm-hmm. these things have to go together in order to keep a, a solid block of a community.
0: Right. That is correct. And if black people don't if they don't see that, it's it's very hard. Well, to me social democracy is when you're able to take the elements of the government and working towards cap- and working with capitalism together, because here in the book he talks a lot about the cult, the um, communist party, and there. And, and in the book, he also talks about the difference between the communists and the Marxists, which are two different yeah. sects. So oh wait, let me mm-hmm.
1: let me let me piggyback off that. Right, this okay. is way further down the line in the book. Right, but this is on page one seventy nine where he talks about the black bourgeoisie and when it comes time to business, right? Mm-hmm. So. It's within the last paragraph of 179 where he says, The black bourgeoisie can be radicalized only if the politics of radicalism coincide with its class aims to immediately uh, immediate social needs. If they require economic integration, then group-oriented economics go on the board. The question of Negro businesses become hypothetical because... It is easier and more politically acceptable to fight for integrated jobs inside the white economic structure than to fight the control of the economic structures over the black community. In fact, the white left-wing radicals were furnished political rationalizations for abandoning the group economic interests of the black community by calling Negro businesses a reactionary. And is so that is exactly what's going on today. Whereas so anytime black people are like you know what maybe we need to start our own thing and then mm-hmm. white folks on the left wing will say well aren't we all living in this together aren't we all POC
0: and you know it's so funny I actually had that in my notes I had page um, one seventy nine paragraph two sentence three so we are on the same <laughs> we are on the same boat mm-hmm. But that and what stuck out to me was exactly what you said but kind of differently at that time we had the economic structure to start our own to invest in our own but because of the wealth inequality that has been divided so badly um within the last 30 years it is almost next to impossible for us to even get ahead you have people talking about you know i hate the whole do for self notion do for self do you understand what you have to do and all the quote-unquote do for stuff self Do you know what it takes to actually run a business? You have to, It's more than just making money and trying to hire black people. You got to worry about payroll. You have to worry about health insurance. There's a lot of things that you got to worry about. Overhead. Prof, uh, businesses don't usually become profitable until their second or fifth year if they make it to the fifth year. And people, Black people right. think that it's just so easy to start your own business. And I, I forgot what book it is, but basically 95, 98 to 95, 95, 90%, of 95, excuse me, 95 to 98% of the Black-owned businesses are usually owned by just one person. So they don't have right. employees, they're self They're self-employed people. That's what they are. At that time, we could have done this. We could have, you know, worked. Now, of course, it's the 1920s. And 1921 is when we had the um, Black Massacre in Tulsa. So we do have a history of us trying, trying, trying. But white supremacy and the U.S. government made sure to break break us down so we didn't have our own. And then later we're going to get into the um, the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which actually made a made, made a change into the way that we do politics today, but that was yeah mm-hmm. that was also on my notes as well. But backing up a little bit, I did not know reading this book that Porgy and Best, I mean, obviously, when I seen Porgy and Best I could tell that it was not written by black people. It was written by white people. But mm-hmm. Porgy and Best was not only written; it was it was also pr- produced, directed. Every element of Porgy and Best, Black people were not involved in it. And Porgy and Best was originally done in Blackface. Mm -hmm. That really shocked me. I'm like, there's a reason why I didn't like that play. (laughs) And it's amazing that, and the reason why I bring that up is because we have to get in control. Now, at that time, he was telling, look, Black people, you got to get control of your culture. You got to get control of your theater. You got to get control of your music. If not... What well, we see was going down today we yeah. and we can go down the list of black entertainers who worked their butt off and died broke. I mean it, not even not even the 1950s you got people in today they I mean Mary J Blige was homeless. How does Mary J. Blige, after making fifteen, sixteen different albums, becomes homeless I mean wait you know, wait she was homeless. She was staying with somebody right after her... Um, out of here. Yeah, right after she split up with um, Kinu. I mean, I can't think of his name. Is that his name? Oh, yeah, her last,
1: her last husband?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. She was homeless. She's only been... She's only been, And she's only been married one time. I mean, she, I mean, she had previous relationships, but she's. this is her first time being married. But yeah, she was homeless. She was staying with... I can't remember who it was, but she was staying with somebody. It might have been... I don't think it was... She was staying with Queen Latifah for a hot minute. She was staying with her, because she even talked about that. But, yeah, she was. She had really no place to live. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, she – and then, of course, my favorite is – and I'm telling my age when I say this – TLC, what happened to them, mm-hmm. <laughs> the Honda Ravs. <laughs> <laughs> for those who don't know what we're talking about, watch the TLC movie – it was produced by um, VH1. Really good movie, and and for those who are old enough to remember the infamous interview that that they gave on VH1, where they explained in detail how you can sell over what ten million records and still wind up broke. I mean, they yeah. broke down the calculations and everything. Like, no, this is how you can sell, be the number one, still today the number one best-selling girl group of all times, and still wind up broke. Um, but, sorry, back in the book, back to the book, if we don't get a grasp of our culture, then that gives us, um, that gives the, and we're going to talk about this probably in the next podcast, when he talks about blacks and Jews, and that thin line that mm-hmm. anytime you start criticizing Jewish people, you're Uh-oh. often called anti-Semitic, but we're not yeah. gonna to get to that right now. But there's one thing that I want to ask your ask your opinion about, and that is on page 131. And for this this chapter, this is the West Indian Influence. Oh. And I just wanted to get your thought. I'm gonna read you the section that I want to get your perspective on. It's at the, it's the last it's the last paragraph. And this in a land of solidarity solid black men was <laughs> a West Indian gets to the United States, he becomes critical of Negroes being exploited because they don't understand business. To get out uh, from under the yoke of British colonialism and alien traders, the West Indian immigrants, social socialist revolutionaries such as Domingo do not fight British colonialism in their islands. It is necessary first to go to America and learn such advanced thought from the Russian. Jews, after learning it, it took on a nature of something philosophically trans, 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 hmm, transcendent. <laughs> sorry. Um, it is right because it is white. It is essentially pure because it was Western and thus advanced. What's your thoughts on that? Hey Amen.
1: You know, um, I, I kind of see the same stuff today with other ethnic groups, whereas though they come here and be like, well, why don't you have anything? It's like, well, shit, why didn't you have anything back at home where you came from? You you come over here and telling us to get it together. Why you had to come here and get it together? Why can't you do that over there?
0: Let's be more specific. I want to, because when we talk about people who come over here, that can mean anyone I'm specifically talking about, in this case, he's talking about West Indians. For this one, when you bring it up to today, I think of Africans. Oh, man, at
1: going go say the Africans.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's who comes to my mind because Africans, I didn't know this until I actually started listening to a woman who shall remain nameless. Oh, her yeah. podcast, you know what I'm talking about. Um, yeah. And she talked about how Africans are taught in Africa. Don't mess with those African Americans. They actually have a name for us, and I didn't believe that until I listened to a podcast. It's called The Stoop, and it's the two hosts. One girl, she's from Africa. I'm um, Negro, as described in this book, and she was like, "Oh yes, there were. D- we have a name for them. It's a very derogatory name. It's almost like calling us the N word. I can't think. Mm-hmm. Do, you know, do you remember the name? Yes, it's, it's Akata. Thank you, Akata. And it's almost—I think it's equivalent of like a savage. Yeah, it means wild animal. Yes, wild animal. And that's what they think of us. And I and I remember thinking, okay, that's that's that can't be right. And then I was talking to a young man who's from Central America. Excuse me, the Central African Republic. Mm. And he was talking about how he loves it over here. I love America. This is nice over here. And I said, okay. And something said, just ask him this question. I said, what do you think of African Americans? And his first response was, no comment. <laughs> I was like, oh, really? Okay. And and I remember in the article that she was talking about the, the young lady, how Africans are not considered a threat. So mm-hmm. therefore, that's why they get the... Because, you know, you know us... Well, you already got your master's degree. I'm pursuing my master's degree. When it comes to talking about race and race, racial issues, when they go to higher education, they're not considered a threat. So therefore... They're giving more of a, um, they get first dibs on things mm-hmm. that basically belong to us, sort of, right. and in this book, he talks about how they notice the difference, but they're supposed to work hand in hand with you, because that's what Marcus Garvey did, where Africans here that come to America, they look at us and are like, well, what's your problem? What's your issue? And they say, you know what? If you're not going to get it, I'm going I'm to get mine, and mm-hmm. forget you, because we're, and then we get to this whole where we're all black people, we're all the same. Mm-hmm. We feel like we're all each brothers, brothers and sisters. And they say, no, you're not, you're not really an African. They look mm-hmm. at us like we're the outside, like we're the others. That's why I do not like Black Panther at all. I <laughs> I, you I, was I, a Muslim for King, King uh Yes, it was. Not even just T'Challa, just the whole Wakanda. I, somebody had posted on Facebook said, they said, if you don't know who Stan Lee is, then you're evicted from Wakanda. The first comment somebody said was, we're not even welcome in Wakanda. Like, <laughs> did you not? Did we not watch the same movie? Anytime, outside the, even if they were black, came to Wakanda, even when um, Killmonger came to Wakanda, they're like, what are you doing here? You're not welcome here. Even though you are blood, you're still not one of us. They were isolationist. Isolate, isol- I-, I can't think of it. I can't say the word right. Isolationist. Isolationist. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I know yes, that's correct. And they would not welcome anybody else, even if they're, they had no problem welcoming the white man, though, but that's a whole other. No, we're not going to get into oh, man. But I did not like that movie. I, I went in one way and came out another. Now, they show videos from me coming out talking about black power, black power. Where I was at, people were, like, confused. They were like, what am I supposed to take from this? You just, you basically put us black people down. You had the girl throw off the wig, tell them, take this wig off of me. Oh, so you're playing down mm-hmm. women who wear, like, women who wear wigs and weaves? But I- I'm sorry. Mm. Get on to that. But it's this whole, and, and, I, and I brought this up with another friend. Before Black Panther, do you know the number one black movie in America that had a that had the highest box office before Black Panther? Black movie before Mm -hmm. Black
1: Panther. Mm -hmm. Uh, What was that movie? uh, That was the spinoff from The Best Man. Was that it? No. Best Man Holiday. Mm -mm, No. It It, might have been some Ratchet stuff. Then you know, hey,
0: it wasn't Ratchet. It's it's actually a classic.
1: Is it really? Mm-hmm. I don't know I, I, don't, I don't want to say it's my favorite movie well my favorite black movie that captures like true black life and what black life can be in a professional setting was Boomerang but you're, no I... no no you're close
0: you're extremely close when you say Boomerang think of the think of the actor in Boomerang and go a few years behind go a few years back 48 hours a little you're going far too far back Beverly Hills Cop? Uh, you're going too far. Uh, 95. Think of his biggest blockbuster movie, the movie that he's known for. He,
1: he known for, uh, well, he
0: really got famous in You're in that, hours. when oh, you, no, you're right, 48? you're in, when you said 48 Hours and Beverly Hills Cop, it is around that time right. period, around that time period. You are so close. You got the right actor. He was in the movie.
1: Was he, uh, Harlem Night?
0: A little, a little bit further. You're, oh man, you're so warm.
1: Oh man. Um, Eddie's my man, too.
0: Uh, man, you're so close.
1: Was it another 48
0: hours? Big big blockbuster movie. Still an icon today. Has a lot of references. Oh,
1: uh, was it uh, Coming to America? Yep. Yeah,
0: Coming to America. And think about think about it. Fictitious African-American country. Fictitious land. Sorry, fictitious yeah. royalty. Isolationists. Same mm. exact thing. And there are people who still say, I'm from Zamunda. Zamunda does not exist. yeah. <laughs> a and exactly and there was so many i'm like is black people and this is a whole different subject i apologize it's like black people are still trying to and actually he talked about this in the book people black people reminiscing off of what happened in the past he talked about how black people are still reminiscing about what happened with the slave rebellions with marcus the, um the Vizy um nat turner Mm -hmm. like they still reminisce because they don't know they don't have a a framework they don't have a framework they don't know what they're fighting for that's what he said they don't know what they're fighting for so they reminisce back to what they used to do in the past but Mm -hmm. yes i'm sorry i bring that up because black panther coming to america (coughs) these are movies that show that hey black people are still in this whole oh man i i I try to identify with africans and africans don't identify with us
1: at Wait, all. So, so just to piggyback off the what what was said in the book, mm-hmm. is that that was his critique of Garvey. So, you know, everyone here loves Garvey. I love Garvey too, but his critique of Garvey was that okay, you're so naturalistic, you're so pro-black, but why did you have to come to America? to do that, why can't you have that same energy where you came from Mm. and pull black people together and do what you did over there? It's because you came here and you thought it was much easier because black people had this this yearning for something and it was much more free for black people. You couldn't do it under British colonization. So why you come here and talking that stuff?
0: Well, that is true. And also, I don't know at what point um, we saw the destruction of Haiti. But you saw with Haiti, with um, the Saint Le Overture where they took their country back from um, was it French rule? Yep from from French rule. How immediately they were devastated. I mean, you if you go to Haiti, it's not for a for a romantic getaway. You're going there for missions. <laughs> but in fact, Haiti and most people who listen to podcasts know that Haiti and Dominican Republic are right beside each other but even there's a picture that shows the borderline between Haiti and the Dominican Republic and the vegetation is, is totally different one the, literally the grass is greener on the other side if you got mm-hmm. a picture no literally the grass is greener on the other side and it's 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 it, it's so man it really makes you think and for Garvey, yeah, he saw that it was much more easier to do that. And there's, there's also another part in the book that he talked about within Garvey. But, and also in chapter, when he talks about the Negro, um, I think I should have skipped over that. He actually makes a difference between communism and Marxism, and the difference between the two, and uh-huh. the Negro Communist Party. Explain to people, because uh-huh. I am not that politically savvy, but explain to people what was the Negro Communist Party during the 1920s? Um,
1: yeah, so it, I, I actually seen the links on it. So there was a discussion on Twitter that I was having with some uh, people. That was really dope. Was that the the Negro Communists were more people like Paul Rosen, was emerged in the 50s, um, and some other people that the, back in the 20s and 30s. But it was similar to the Marxist people, but the Marxists, uh, philosophers is more of a lifestyle than a political group for them so the 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 communist movement was more so about you know the poor the poor people of color stuff that's going on today it was like oh you know we're all oppressed this and the third you know we see this growing wage inequality is wealth inequality we need to just take from the rich and you know just distribute it amongst you know, everybody in the, in the country. But his critique on that was that the philosophies of that was, you know, mainly given to them by white Jews, mm-hmm. and especially white Russian Jews at that who's been outcast from Russia itself. So the main place where, you know, Marxism was really popping off at and it was birthed at was that they it was the Jews that came here and gave the Black folks this philosophy, and they introduced that into the to the artistic point of it and for the political group whereas the Marxists was more so a lifestyle thing whereas though, like kind of you see it today whereas though it, it's become anti every like any any anti-statusment it is it's like they're just anti against that and we kind of see that today and, and this is my problem with the modern leftist group is that it's nothing but a remix of the the cultural marxism of the 1920s and 30s whereas though it's becoming super disruptive, like the Antifa group. The hmm. Antifa group is something like the the Marxists that you see today. Whereas, um, there's just basically anarchist group.
0: I see. Okay, because they're and actually, I think that we are getting to that point where people are calling for communism because of the wealth distribution. When right, one um, percent own more than half of the 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 ninety nine percent.
1: Right, but but again, you know, a lot of that is due through language, though. Like, um, I, I used to be heavy on a lot of the Marxist stuff, too. I think that happens to a lot of younger folks that come from poverty, and so they actually go out into the field and experience stuff on their own. They do their own research inside of the institutions, mm-hmm. and they start to see that a lot of it is bullshit. So even out here in California, especially in San Francisco, which is the highest uh, place for rent in the entire country, is that you'll hear you know, these buzzwords. So they'll say, if you make a $100,000, you're in poverty here, right? So you'll be like, how the hell is that poverty a $100,000 a year? But then when you read between the final lines, they say, oh no, it's a family of four. So if you got like three kids, then you're in poverty. It's like, well, of course, because a four-bedroom apartment here is like $6,000 or something like that. But if you just by yourself making a $100,000, you good. Mm. But how it's being framed. So when they talk about like the 1% and the wealth inequality and stuff like that, what most people don't know when they talk about the 1% is that we're talking about the world. We're not just talking about United States. So when you hear about the 1%, it's like, well, in actuality, most people in America are a part of this 1%. So it, it becomes this, this idea that make the most of the people rebel against what's actually going on
0: and it's important for people to read the fine lines when they say those type of statistics because you are absolutely correct that's like here in chicago they do the same exact thing and we're actually seeing that now in northern virginia and new york with amazon moving to those two locations people are saying that you know it's going to be coming if you make a hundred thousand dollars then it might be affordable in DC, but not necessarily affordable yeah. in New York. But they're thinking in times of, of families and things of that sort. Amir, thank you so much. And for those who will check out the podcast, catch us next week as we discuss the rest. All right. <music>